Hi, and welcome to Gender Nebulous Series 2, Episode 4. And we have a very special guest today, Mr. Peter Tatchell, human rights activist for the past 50 years and more, no doubt. Um, welcome, Peter. And we also have my co-host, uh, Miss Frida Wallace, and I'm Victoria Hodges. So welcome, Peter. It's great to join you. Yeah, let's start with, you know, you, you just arrived in London, age 19, fresh from Australia, and, you you know, you're probably on your own trying to find some, I don't know, some kind of organisations to work with to feel like, you know, you're at home. Um, and I think it was around 1970 that the Gay Liberation Front um, was started. Is that is that the same time that you'd arrived? Is that the, the same year? I arrived the following year, 1971, so about nine months after the Gay Liberation Fund had been established. And when I came to London, it was on the second day in the city that I saw a lamppost sticker advertising the meetings of the Gay Liberation Front. And I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> I want to be part of that. Mm. Um, I had been campaigning as a lone person back in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia, but there were no LGBT plus organisations there at all. Mm. And I'm, am I right in thinking at the time, like uh, going back to the 60s when homosexuality was decriminalised, there wasn't like a public kind of appetite for that. The the actual law was changed almost against public, uh, you know, public support, because people often t think now now like everything is a referendum, things are voted for, and things have to be brought to parliament. But back then, I think that law was changed because it was just seen to be the right thing to do, and that might have caused more backlash in in the press and it might have made people's lives a little bit more difficult even though the law had changed that didn't necessarily mean that life was easier and would, would you say that's a fair assessment of the situation at the time i don't think there was a public backlash i have never heard that from people around mm. at the time mm. um but certainly there was a big increase in police harassment of the lgbt plus community so um in the few years after the 1967 Act, the number of gay and bisexual men arrested and convicted or cautioned for same-sex consenting behaviour rose by 400%. Right. So it got much worse, much worse in terms of policing. So Gay, gay Liberation Front, I think in 1970, it was Britain's first LGBT protest against police harassment. Um, and the first gay pride was in 1972. So were you involved in, in 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 those? Yeah, I was involved in the Gay Liberation Front campaign against police harassment. Yeah. Um, we, among other things, um, did a survey of LGBT plus people about their experiences with the police. And we were able to document instances and examples of excessive, extremely excessive police behaviour you know, arresting people for giving each other a goodnight kiss at a bus stop, um, private parties being raided, uh, same-sex couples being arrested for dancing together. Uh, there was a whole litany of horror stories, but it was really useful that we were able to get, get this ammunition, this evidence, to prove what we were saying. The other thing, of course, is that we did, uh, you know, challenge the police, you know. We, we did protest against the police, 
um, about the way they were treating us. And that was, well, it was unheard of before the Gay Liberation Front. Um, and it began to put the police on the back foot because they'd never previously been challenged. Yeah. So one of the things that I was looking at when I was kind of researching this interview was that um, London Gay Pride 1973, there was a, a, a homosexuals are revolting poster. Uh, I think it was something that you have been involved in putting together. And then at the, the anniversary, the, 50, the 50th anniversary of Gay Liberation Front in 2020, um, was it Martin Farrell who had updated your poster to say homosexuals are still revolting? Because that that image, for me, it, it, it it's really kind of interesting how you know fifty years later, it's been you know it's been updated like that. Yeah, I mean, um, I made that poster in my. Was that for a protest you were going on at the time? No, that was for the nineteen seventy three Gay Pride March. Okay, so that that photo of the poster that's me with my friends um, Noel Glynn and Ted Brown. Okay. Um, right. And the photo was actually taken in Hyde Park after the march was over. Um, we had a gay day picnic in the park after the Pride March. But going back to your previous question, yes, I was involved with about 30 other people in organising and promoting the first ever UK Pride Parade, which took place in London on the 1st of July, 1972. There were only about 700 of us, because back then most LGBT plus people were in the closet. You know, they didn't dare show their faces because they feared arrest, being beaten up, being sacked from their jobs, being evicted by their landlords, being ostracized by their friends. So, you know, to get 700 people in 1971 and 1972 was, was, was we thought quite an achievement. Uh, nothing by comparison to now, but back then that, that was, that was a success in our eyes. And it emboldened us to do further uh, protests, further pride marches in the years that followed. So, when you were doing those kind of protests in, in you know in the seventies in that era, were you constantly being you know abused by police and getting arrested and you know all those kind of things, or 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 were they you know would they kind of leave you to it? I mean, what was the what was the atmosphere at the time? I'll give you one typical example in late uh, nineteen seventy one, uh, the Gay Liberation Front had been alerted to pubs and bars that refused to serve, quote, queers and poofs and lezzies. So we took a policy of going to those pubs and bars and demanding to be served. Mm. Uh, one of them was the Chepstow um, in West London in Notting Hill Gate, uh, Bayswater area. And about 30 or 40 of us went there one night and demanded to be served. The landlord refused to serve us, so we refused to leave. We sat down in the pub. Um, the landlord called the police. Um, I think about three or four vanfuls of police arrived and proceeded to drag us out of the pub. Um, I was one of about half a dozen people who were singled out to be lined up in the alleyway at the side of the pub. And it was a freezing cold October night, but the police made us strip down to our underpants. And then a big burly sergeant came along the line, put his hand in our underpants and squeezed our testicles until we screamed. Oh, That's the kind of thing the police did back then. 
And there was nothing you could do about it because the police were a law unto themselves. There was no police complaints procedure, no police ombudsman. They could get away with it. So this sounds to me like a, it's like a, it's, it's not just a, the story of gay liberation. It's a story about police brutality because you obviously a target for the police. So did you have sort of uh, affinity with black communities at that time? Because obviously they would suffer the same kind of prejudices. So the kind of clubs or the kind of places where gay men would find uh, safety may have come across with the same places where black and ethnic minority people were uh, meeting. So was there sort of cross-pollination there between those communities? Well, you're right. I mean, the Gay Liberation Front had a generalised view to oppose all oppression. So we stood in solidarity with the Black and Asian communities, with the Women's Liberation Movement, with working-class and trade union struggles. We believed that we were part of a broad spectrum of human rights and social justice campaigners, and that we should work together and support each other. Now, it was not always reciprocated. Mm. Um, The Gay Liberation Front, I think, was the only non-Black organisation to stand in solidarity outside the court during the trial of the Mangrove Nine. Right. Nine Black activists who are framed by the police. But we were there to show our solidarity I've got to say that they were not overly welcoming of us being in attendance. Yeah. So the, the some of them were, but but there were also some raised eyebrows and um, visible hostility from from some of the black activists there, who didn't acknowledge that LGBT plus liberation was a legitimate liberation. Um, likewise, when the Conservative government passed the notorious or sought to pass the notorious. Industrial Relations Act in 1971 against the trade union movement. Uh, the Gay Liberation Front was there marching in solidarity, but it was attacked by some sections of the crowd. You know, the banner poles were hurled at us, coins, there were, was abuse. Um, so again, you know, we showed them solidarity, but they didn't always show us solidarity. Well, that, did, that, did that not deter you? You always stood in solidarity. And did you, I was going to say, like, because you mentioned uh, the Conservative Party, what, at what point did, like, politi- po- real political uh, politi- like politicians from uh, elected parties start to notice or perhaps support you in a, in a parliamentary way? Was that later or was that about this time? Well, the first part of your question, um, definitely we took the view that no matter what others did or said about us as LGBTs, we were going to stand for what is right. Right. We would stand and support them even if they didn't support us. And I think over time that did result in respect, that people who perhaps were hostile or unsympathetic began to come around because they saw the fact that regardless of how we were treated, we always treated them right and stood in solidarity with their struggle. The second part of your question, um, it was not until the 1980s, really, that significant numbers of politicians began to support LGBT plus rights. And they were almost entirely Labour MPs. 
And I would say there wasn't a huge number of them, maybe 20 or 30 at the most. Um, you know, people like Tony Benn, Audrey Wise, uh, Dawn Primarolo, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, these, these are the stalwarts who stood with us in very difficult times. And they were often pretty much lone voices. Do you think that might have been because they were trying to protect their own closeted world? Because they might have been, because obviously homosexual acts were going on, in, you know, in Parliament. It was, it's, it's probably well known that politicians were engaging in, you know, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever. But they wanted to keep control of the narrative. So rather than, you know, obviously you you as protesters could potentially out people you know if 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 they got on the wrong side so i think there's like a protectionism rather than them wanting to you know help anybody they would see it as putting something in the way because they know that they could be exposed no i, I don't agree with that no no the, these these labor mps were stalwarts who who supported right. us out of genuine conviction that lgbt plus rights were human rights it wasn't, there was no self-interested motive. In fact, they got a lot of flack, criticism, and probably some of them lost votes. Oh, yeah. I, I think I think I might have uh, misspoke that because I was trying to say the, the people again, like in the Conservative Party, more likely, who, who obviously there's like, there was, would have been a culture there where they would have been doing things behind the wives' backs. <laughs> so they, they would create that, uh, you know, narrative and that. So obviously they don't want to talk about homosexuality because it, it it means they're talking about themselves in a lot of cases, you know, and they could they could be exposed by the press. Yeah. So so just going back to the the, the GLF, I mean, it it, it kind of uh, did it did it finish in seventy three because I th- I think it was only around for about three or four years. Well, seventy four, I think. You know, it it, it devolved into um, groups instead of one central meeting. There were several, like there were South London, West London, East London, North London. So did that was that the kind of the seed organization which later on became outrage? Is that kind of where it started from? No, no. No. Okay. So so let's let's okay. So I know that's a, like a decade later, so or maybe two decades later. So you, we were just talking about the eighties there and uh, you know, politicians. Now you you were you stood for the Bermondsey by-election, didn't you? And this this election was, you know, it's I think it's renowned as the most homophobic in modern British history. You were assaulted in the street, had your flat attacked, death threats, bullet through your front door. Um, could you just tell us a bit about what was going on in that campaign that you, you were part of? Well, I was a left wing Labour candidate. I was arguing for sensible left-wing policies like a national minimum wage to combat low pay. And I was denounced by the press and by politicians. They said that was an extremist policy. Um, I argued for a negotiated political settlement to the war in the north of Ireland. And I was denounced as a supporter of the IRA. I wasn't. But, you know, what I proposed eventually became Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Um, I argued in favour of a comprehensive law to protect everyone against discrimination. That was also denounced as extremist, even by some in the Labour Party. Um, So I was way ahead of my time. But you are right. Most commentators say it was the dirtiest and most violent election in Britain in, well, probably since 1945, or maybe even beyond that. 
And it was certainly the most homophobic in British history. There's, there's never been such a homophobic campaign before or since. And you you didn't win that by election, but who who was it that you were up against at the time? I, I had, a at the time, a record 14 rival candidates. Wow. Um, there'd never been so many candidates in a single by-election before, including four neo-Nazi and fascist uh, candidates, um, the Liberals, the Conservatives, um, a real Labour candidate who was standing against me because of my left-wing and pro-LGBT plus policies, yeah. um, and and a few others like the you know Lord Such of the um, Monster Rape. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, what what did you do in the kind of years after that? You know, before outrage began, what what things were you doing? Because I think that was you know that was eighty three. Don't think outrage and start, started until nineteen ninety. So, what what kind of exciting things were you up to during that period? Well, the intense homophobia I experienced in the Bermondsey by-election brought home to me the scale of prejudice and discrimination we still faced. So, I began to put a lot more energy, uh, not just in general human rights issues, but also particularly into LGBT plus issues. So I was for several years operating as a freelance campaigner. I got together ad hoc coalitions of people to um, challenge the homophobia of the church, to challenge homophobia in the media, to challenge the police over the way they were oppressing our community, uh, to challenge the government and Parliament as a whole for its failure to legislate LGBT plus equality. But these were all ad hoc um, coalitions each time it wasn't a specific organization um you're right it wasn't until 1990 that outrage was formed and i was there at the founding meeting with about 30 or 35 others so we collectively founded it uh in that year and began a series of very high profile uh, direct action protests non-violent peaceful but direct action protests the kissing in public protests and that kind of thing. Yeah, we had a mass we had a mass kissing in Piccadilly Circus, a queer wedding in Trafalgar Square, um, a mass turn in at Bow Street Police Station where Oscar Wilde had been detained after his arrest in 1895. Lots of things like that. And the effect of those protests was to get masses of media coverage, which was our aim. Um, but that wasn't an end in itself. The purpose was through media coverage to raise public awareness about the scale of homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. And through that change hearts and minds to build public support, to change public opinion so that then politicians would feel confident that they could change the law. So there were some really kind of well-known kind of actions that you, you did during this time. I mean, as we just spoke about, you know, September 1990 there was a group organised, you know, the kissing at Piccadilly Gardens. Um, there was also... Piccadilly Circus. Sorry, Piccadilly Circus. There was also um, outing by frocks and later, you know, admitting the plan had been a ruse and the goal of getting newspapers, you know, which had outed themselves. You know, can you just talk about that a little bit? I know that also kind of plays into the story that you told at um, Chippen and Pride about the Easter sermon by George Kerry. There was this kind of outing thing that you were talking about. Can you, can you just tell us about that? Uh, Frox 
was a subgroup of outrage. It wasn't an official outrage group. And FROX right. stands for faggots rooting out closeted sexuality. Right. <laughs> it was basically three people uh, within outrage, and this was their own thing. They announced that they were going to out 200 leading public figures and accuse them of homophobia and hypocrisy. The charge was going to be that they preached against homosexuality yeah. but were LGBT in private. So it was all about exposing hypocrisy and double standards. It created a huge fury. But as you say, the whole thing, the whole thing was a ruse. You know, they never intended to out anybody, but they used it as a way of exposing the hypocrisy of the mass media. Because once the mass media went berserk saying this is outrageous, this is disgusting. And all the mass media who were doing this had been outing people left, right and center for decades uh, without without any moral purpose, just because they thought the gay people were despicable and didn't deserve respect and dignity. Well, historically, the British press have, have always been, uh, you know, pretty vicious. And when they find a target, they want to, and it's so politically motivated, like they have the ones they like, they have the ones they don't like. And uh, just speaking about you personally, Peter, did you become like singled out as somebody that they, because obviously your your name is in the ascendant, people start to know your name, they know who you are. So when, like, say they do want to talk about gay rights, you start to come up as the, the go-to kind of spokesperson. As so well, has that been a problem for you sometimes? Because when you are a lone voice, sometimes when you are a voice out there in the the ether and, and people know who you are, that does that put a lot of pressure on you then to always say the right thing, to always be representational of perhaps every issue? And is that is that been a pressure for you, do you think? Well, of course, I became a household name mm. during the by-election in Bermondsey in 1983 and indeed in the run-up to it because, of course, for 15 months I was banned as a Labour candidate right? because I advocated non-violent protests against the Tory government and they said this was anti-parliamentary. So there was a huge furore and there was an attempt to block me from ever standing, but eventually the Labour Party relented. So after the Bermondsey by-election... I could have gone away and gone back to my work and career in journalism and um, housing rights. But I thought I would use my public profile to champion LGBT plus rights and other human rights issues. So I never set myself up to be a spokesperson for the community. It's not possible for any one person to do that. I was essentially speaking for myself and the coalition that I organised for each of these particular campaigns. So I think it was in 1987, the Church of England had its General Synod and we organised protests outside because the Archbishop of Canterbury was saying that gay people are sinners and must repent. So we did a protest to challenge him and the Church of England's Parliament. Um, but we were never claiming to speak for everyone in our community. And the same with outrage. You know, Outrage spoke for itself and its supporters. We didn't speak for the entire community. And likewise today... You know, I do not claim to speak for every LGBT plus person. On most issues, I do probably reflect the consensus that you know conversion therapy should be banned, that trans people should be able to change their legal documents by self-ID through a statutory declaration. You know, those those are the general consensus. Yeah. But there are some issues where people won't agree with me, and that's fine, you know. Um, but it is always a pressure and a burden in a sense that, you know, I'm very conscious that I'm very lucky and privileged to have 
a media platform, which many don't. So often I will try and get others to be given the platform. So recently I got invited to a couple of interviews and I specifically said, you know, well, I actually think this person would be better. You know, they are black. They know the issue better. Yes. They are trans. They, they know trans issues from their own experience. So I try to use my position to give a platform to others. Um, and also, of course, um, wherever possible, you know, when I do speak to mention other relevant organizations, you know, like Trans in the City or UK Black Pride. Yeah. I was just going to say, because I've been in my small way, been involved in some TV debates. I've been on talk TV because they tend to be the people that agitate these kind of polemics. And, and, and when I'm asked to go on something like that, I'm very much aware, am I representing myself or the trans community? So that was inter- that's why I wanted to ask you that, because obviously when you go on something like Talk TV or GB News, you, you, you are very much aware that they're not batting for us. You're there to disrupt the conversation. And, I, and, and that's why I think I wanted to ask that because I've sometimes felt like, am I being used or am I adding anything to the conversation? Because I get a lot of backlash from other trans people maybe. So I don't know why you do that. It's just a setup. And I don't think, do you feel sometimes like that, like I did, that perhaps it's, it's, it's negative? When, like when you speak to Piers Morgan, for example, you know he's not going to give you an easy ride, but he also misses the point you're trying to make as well. Yeah, so do you think that's... Well, you are absolutely right to go on GB News and talk TV. That's exactly where your voice and the voice of trans people needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to talk to The Guardian or the BBC you know, you want to reach the audience who are watching or listening to Talk TV and GB News. You want to get over to them an alternative point of view. Mm. Because if you don't do it, all the audience will hear will be an anti-trans argument. Yeah. So uh, this is why I get very frustrated. I try not to do um, too many, you know, interviews where trans is a, is a factor but sometimes they say look we've tried they give up often read off a list of you know five or six people they've tried who've refused to do the interview so i think to myself well better that i do it than nobody does it and these bigots are allowed to spout what they want i think i think a lot of the reasons why people may refuse to do those interviews is because of the you know the hate that they will get on well, platforms like feel. twitter you know, after doing it, because, you know, Frida has been on several times, these kind of shows and the, the you know, the, the pylons afterwards on Twitter, are absolutely, you know, disgusting. It, it's horrendous. Well, I've had people try and get me sacked from my day job. I've had people try and dox me. I've had, I mean, I'm not even that well. I mean, to imagine what it must be like, I mean, I, in a way, I suppose it, it, you've gone through this so for so long that perhaps you build up a kind of way of dealing with it. But it was quite a shock to me, actually, when I first realised that there were like lobbyists like Sex Matters, I'm sure you've heard of the LGB Alliance. They are very pernicious in trying to attack us. So when somebody like me does put my head a little bit above the parapet, they want to cut it down straight away. Um, but I, I, obviously I'm, I'm not a shrinking violet and I have tried to encourage other trans women, trans people, non-binary people, but we are quite shy really. And we just want to get on with our lives. And I think that, do you think that, because the conversation has shifted just to go off on a little bit of a tangent now, but the conversation has shifted to trans a lot more I've noticed. And do you think that takes 
something away from what you're trying to do or do, are you able to add to that conversation? I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think the trans issue has become far too much the media are talking about? Well, trans rights are human rights. They have to be defended. So if trans people are under attack, we have to all collectively defend the trans community. And if that means going on programs to face horrible bigots, so be it. I'm never expecting to change their hearts and minds, but I'm aiming to change the hearts and minds of some of the viewers. And only just two days ago, someone came up to me in the street and said, oh, well done on GB News. You know, I, I watched it a lot. Um, I, I never understood the trans issue, but you explained it so well. I, 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 I now, I'm now totally on side. So that's just one example of how you can change uh, people's understanding and provoke, ex promote uh, acceptance. So I know it's tough. I mean, I would advise that if you're, you know, anxious about it, just don't look at Twitter for a few days. I mean, sometimes I don't look at my Twitter feed sometimes for days on end because it's so toxic. It is. Yeah. I think some of the some of the things that, you know, people worry about when they do that is, you know, they'll come after you and try and get you fired at your job. Yeah. You know, so there yeah. is a there is a risk associated with, you know, putting yourself so you know so far, you know, above the parapet. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that, Peter? Well, fortunately, my Peter Tatchell Foundation will not yeah. be uh, swayed at all by. No, they're not going to fire you. Something attempts <laughs> to to fire me and so on. But of course, in the past, you know, I was freelance doing freelance journalism and research, and people would try and get me fired. They never succeeded, but they did try. And yes, it was quite nerve-wracking. But fortunately, I was working for organisations that were not swayed by what was obvious prejudice and you know, false and malicious allegations. Um, so I think everybody must weigh up what they feel able to do, what they feel safe and secure in doing, and then take it from there. Well, it's been like a steep learning curve for me because... I mean, obviously, sometimes in those interview situations, you can sometimes feel very defensive because you've obviously got a dog in the fight, but you, you've got to think, who am I speaking to right now? And I'm, I always think of my mum because my mum doesn't understand the issue. So if I can speak as if I'm talking to somebody at home who isn't necessarily trans or isn't necessarily reading Twitter all day, that might come across a little bit better because in, in the first few things I did, I was very angry and I think it kind of, I didn't want to be the angry trans person on the telly, but that's what it kind of came across. But I mean, I, I think I, I, I was justifiably defending what was basically a made up story in the paper because they made up some stories about children identifying as cats. And the whole thing seems like a way, obviously that was a story about school bullying yeah. that became that because it benefited the narrative and it's a dehumanization tactic. And I think that was the subject that, so you were invited to go on to Piers Morgan to talk about. And what I noticed was Piers Morgan totally did deflect and start asking you about uh, Philip Schofield. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. But you, you, I think you handled that pretty well. So <laughs> I don't know what I'd have done in that situation. but uh... You're right. The tactic you've used is very good. Just imagine you're speaking to your mum or to a friend or, you know, if you think about it in that way, it makes it much easier to, first of all, to stay calm, mm. be rational, and just come across as a reasonable person. Mm. Sometimes there are outrageous things said, and my heart sort of jumps that I want to scream it back. Yeah. So I just say, stay calm, 
the important thing is to come across as being polite and courteous and and reasonable and that's that's how you win people over i've no i've noticed when you do interviews peter you know you with somebody like piers morgan you you know he might be attacking you and attacking you and attacking you and saying all kinds of things but you always stay on point you repeat what you say several times and you always kind of keep it very calm and bring it back to that point and that's it's a really powerful way to kind of get your message across you just kind of stick to your points keep making them as the you know as the conversation continues yeah. There was something else I picked up on on the, on the Piers Morgan thing. I think it was is it Douglas Murray, mm-hmm. and Douglas Murray seems to represent this what has become this gay not queer kind of culture where we we accept that we're gay now. All the work is done. There's nothing to worry about being gay. We've got all our rights. It's like this arrogance because he is from some kind of pretty. He's obviously from a privileged background, and it's like they reject queerness. They reject the. Um, expression of queerness because they i think do you think that has always existed in gaylib there's always been like the drag queens the kind of outsiders the people on the street and then there's like been sort of a strata of gay um oppression so people who are more conservative will say oh yeah well i'm gay but i'm not i've got nothing to do with those people so it can come it can seem like there's a you know, within the gay community now, there seems to be this schism. And I don't know if that's historic or if it's a recent thing. Is that what you... Well, going back to the days of the Gay Liberation Front, I remember we were very scathing of what we called the the Chelsea Queens. <laughs> um, these were middle-class, well-off, white gay men. Right. Um, who were just, their whole life revolved around parties, socialising, things like that, you know. Um, they weren't engaged in any campaigning they looked down on us uh, they saw us as troublemakers and extremists yeah. um you know there's always been a strata within our community who have like reaped the benefits yes of the campaigns of people like myself and many others but never contributed anything and then have often turned around and rubbish what we've done or um you know battered for our critics and opponents I was going to say, I sometimes get what you call tone policed a lot because I came out of a very queer kind of punk movement. I like Derek Jarman and I was interested. I've, uh, I met the artist Dougie Fields. I'm not sure if you're aware of Dougie and those kind of people. And they were they were kind of very, vis- very visual and the way they spoke because like a, a lot of my friends were drag queens. So when I start, started to talk on trans rights, I had to sort of change the way I spoke a little bit because a lot of trans women, they weren't from that queer culture. They transitioned perhaps later in life. And I sometimes thought, oh, gosh, I, I'm being told off <laughs> for being, you know, so there, there was also that. So, it, so I, I think what I'm saying is within within a minority, there are always going to be other like little minorities that agitate for each other. And, and like someone like you, Peter, who I think, you know, does speak very well runs into trouble a little bit and you do get people saying oh you said this wrong you did that wrong does that get tiresome sometimes well of course i'm sufficiently able to acknowledge that you know i don't always get it right and yeah. in fact after nearly every interview i do uh, or every public talk i always think oh, i could have done better i should have yes. said that you know so i'm very harsh and self-critical and you know it used to beat me up a lot i used to have like i've yeah. been musing over it for hours and hours afterwards and you know getting a headache and my stomach would be churning over i think to myself i've had this 
very lucky privileged opportunity to speak and I didn't do it right so I'd be really angry with myself but nowadays I'm a bit more cool and relaxed I recognize that no one can get it right all the time um and the important thing is to judge a person on the totality of their contribution and yeah we are all allowed to make mistakes absolutely yeah so you know you've you've had all these kind of you know years and years of doing these protests and things and let's talk about the 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 netflix film the documentary that came out recently uh hating peter tatchell i mean that that film kind of summarizes all these major events that you've been involved with over the years i mean i know that film wasn't um produced by yourself but how did that how did you get involved in that in that project because it it was an amazing film I mean, it was it left me thinking wow look at the stuff that peter's been through you know especially the story around mugabe and how you were beaten and mm. left unconscious on the road I mean, it was horrendous to some of the stuff you've been through. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at that film, um, it brings back a lot of mixed memories. Yeah, I bet. Um, some pretty painful episodes of beatings that I've experienced. Mm. Um, but the film began uh, back in 2015 when the filmmaker Christopher Amos approached me and said that he was very surprised there'd never been a film documentary made about my life and campaigning and that he would like to do it so it was his film he had total editorial independence and control um i just assisted him by putting him in contact with people he wanted to speak to um giving him copies of old vhs vhs tapes uh, of programs i'd been on so he could get the originals um and then of course he accompanied me to Moscow in 2018 when I staged a protest yes. on the opening day of the World Cup in Moscow. Yeah. Um, but I collaborated with him very simply because I wanted to show that social change is possible and through my own campaigning, give people tips and ideas on how to achieve it. So I hope that having watched the film, it will inspire more people become changemaker. I've watched it twice. I intend to watch it again because it was, I found it really inspiring. Um, you know, to it, it kind of yeah, you know, you watch that film and you think, right, what am I going to do? How am I going to go and do yeah, things like it this? It did make me think about that because you know, it's it's really inspiring. Yeah. It truly. I mean, it it made me realize that it could be just that one moment that changes history or changes people's minds because we can campaign forever and and write to politicians, which is all not not disregarding that. It's brilliant if you want to do that, but it can be just that one action where where the cameras are there just at the right moment, and that I think you watch is what comes across. It's like, and obviously that that's a very risky strategy, but I think it's paid off. And, and obviously with the um, Moscow, uh, you know the the World Cup, yeah, and recently you were in um, gosh where was it that I know the uh, the recent World Cup. Qatar. Qatar, that was Qatar. it. Yeah, yeah you, you, were the, you were the lone voice there, really. Mm. So I was thinking that, you know, there's Peter on his own in a country that if I went to, I'd be terrified. And there you are. I was terrified. I was but terrified. You, yeah. But it's it's so disappointing because the, the footballers did want to work. You remember the One Love armband? Yeah. And they went back on that. And I was like, gosh, are you there for us or are you not? You know, and, and obviously that's to do with FIFA's political wranglings but less said about that the better so, so that that qatar <laughs> incident were you actually were you arrested and then released um i was detained on the pavement for nearly one hour 
um, interrogated extensively about who I was, where I was from, how I got into Qatar, who I knew in Qatar, mm-hmm. uh, what my plans were, etc. Mm. In the end, um, I, I actually told the police and the security agents, I said, look, this is looking very, very bad. You know, this protest has been filmed. It's already been sent to news agencies all around the world. It's yeah. going to be a PR disaster. You better sort it out. Mm. And then I fortunately, my foundation uh, officers in London contacted the foreign office here in London and they contacted the British embassy in Qatar and they got on the phone to the Qatar authorities. So it was a combination of all those things that ended up releasing me without charge, but telling me I should go to the airport and get on the next plane, which which is what I did. As someone who is, you know, quite, you know, as famous as you are in these, in these kind of scenarios, do you, do you feel as though you have some uh, some kind of privilege, you know, in the way you're treated? Because I know if I was to do that, I, I probably wouldn't get the same, you know, respect from the authorities when I, you know, when I called them up and asked them for help. I mean, do you, do you find as you've done this for so many years that that, you know, you've been treated better because of who you are? Yeah, over time, I have been treated better, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I am lucky. I am privileged. Um, uh, there's no doubt about that either. Um but I think it, it is earned absolutely you know, over time. Oh, yes. oh, absolutely. Um, lots of people will say, I don't always agree with you, but mm. I, I admire you for sticking up for your principles or, you know, I know you have a good heart. I think, I think Sir Ian McKellen said that in the, in the, uh, in the documentary, uh, there was a, there was a really nice section in there where the two of you were talking about various things. I think those were, I think he made that statement actually. I was going to say, you certainly put yourself in the line of fire. There's no doubt about that. I was just thinking uh, there was a recent protest uh, for Trans Pride this uh, this Saturday, and you were there. And what took all the media attention, and I want you to know what you felt about this, was Sarah Jane Baker. And because of some of the words she said, she, I think she said something, uh, if you see a turf, you punch them in the face. I think that was the quote that made it to the Daily Mail. And I was thinking, well, actually, you know what Sarah did there, even though I don't fully agree with that sentiment, she's actually drawn a lot of attention. Now, um, would you say that was a good good move or a bad move? Because I've been humming and ahhing about this and I'm writing a little piece about it. And I fully support Sarah because of what she's been through as a human being. I think she arrived at that moment through a whole lot of pain. But it, would you say that was a good action or, you know... What, how, how do you feel about that? I can understand the rage and anger given what trans people have suffered over the years and decades. I totally get that. But I think it's very important that we fight high when others fight low. Yeah, We shouldn't stoop to their tactics. This is the kind of stuff that trans critics say against trans people and trans allies. We shouldn't reciprocate in kind. We should maintain yeah. the moral high ground. But in, but in reality, Sarah's using words. She's not harming anyone. And I think I think the rhetoric is strong, but it's it's, it's free speech at the end of the day. If, if that's what Sarah feels the need to say, it's performative. I think it's in the tradition of protest. And the people, like Suella Breverman put a tweet out, didn't she, saying we need to get the police to find... I mean, calling the police on Sunday for a speech, that's a that's a very... You know, it's a very grey area. I don't want to go down that road, do we? 
So, yeah. well, you know, incitement to violence is against the law. You know, and I myself as a trans ally and all my trans friends have experienced many, many incitements to violence against us. So I don't think we should respond in the same way. You know, let, 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 let the trans critics play dirty. Let us yeah. play clean. I yeah. think when we do play dirty like that, I mean, I think we're gifting the other side. Yes, we are. You know, something against us, which is probably not the wisest things to do. But I still maintain that 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 moment, that 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 speech. I wouldn't say it was a speech; it was more of an utterance. <laughs> I, mean, I, agree with, I agree with the sentiment, but I don't agree with the wording. Yeah, I agree with. We need we needed that kind of powerful because no, I don't think that would have been reported at all in the media. I don't think. Any of those speakers would have had that. The, the, I mean, even even though the messaging we can disagree with, I think in a long in a longer timeline, when it's like the thing with Ali Rabushkin, you know, the, in in New Zealand, she poured the tomato juice over Kelly J Keen, and that I think that was a necessary action to get that the press attention, and I supported Ali, and we've spoken to Ali on the podcast, haven't we? And um, so, you know, it's those kind of things, while they might seem violent, might, might seem extreme, I think sometimes um, they are necessary. Would you agree with that? And... Well, no, not really, because, you know, what has happened is instead of focusing on the just cause of trans rights, mm. focus is now on the violent rhetoric. Mm. And I know quite a lot of trans people have told me personally that they think it was a huge mistake. Because it, it it made that threat, that incitement, the story, rather than the fact that nearly thirty thousand people marched through London, yeah. and we had all great speeches from people like Munro Burgoff and many others that didn't get reported. So I, I just think that yeah, I, I mean think, it does that, it deflects the attention, that, doesn't it? I think we've got to stick to um, using the methods that reflect what we aspire to. Mm. If you want a kinder, more gentler society, you must use those methods. They can, you can still have direct action. You know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and many others did amazing, provocative, confrontational things that challenged the establishment, broke the law, and were incredibly powerful. But part of their power was their nonviolence. Mm. The fact that they did not resort to the violence of the British state in India or the violence of the police in the southern states of America. They maintained the moral high ground and that won public sympathy and support. Whereas, for example, in Ireland, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, which was non-violent, had huge public support in England, Wales and Scotland. But when the IRA began their violent terror campaign, that support evaporated. Yeah, uh, the the issue became not the cause of United Ireland, which I support. It became the methods, the violent methods of the IRA. So I think you know the the means you use have to reflect the goal you aspire to. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, I I, I couldn't really compare what Ali Rabushkin did and sort of Baker to the IRA necessarily, but I understand what you mean. And I think, yeah, that's that when you take when 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 the public do get 
to witness that as trans rights or that they, they probably that's what they take away but i think when we don't have the support of the media when it's really difficult for somebody like me to to speak publicly and get the kind of attention that we have we, you have to do it in a kind of extreme way and and why we can agree that those actions are probably going in the wrong direction it's it's it just seems to be they've happened because they're not in isolation. They've happened because nobody's listening to us. And it's pe people like you, Peter, that do actually speak for us. Yeah, I think if, if, you want to, if you want to make an impact, you don't need to do it by inciting violence, which is a gift to the LGB alliance and, yes. and exactly. other groups. Go, go and occupy Suella Breverman's home. Yeah. Uh, go, go and blockade her car in the street. Well, we have talked but about those, going to Tufton, are, Tufton Street. Are, those are dramatic actions that will get you media coverage, but in a non-violent way. Yeah. So this brings us on to this this topic of non-violent direct action, which I know is something that you always talk about, Peter. That's your that's your kind of your thing. Um so you know, how do we go about doing that in such a way that, you know, we're not putting ourselves at too much risk? Um we're doing the we're doing the protest. We're doing the direct action. It's non-violent. I mean, what was what was your what would your advice be for someone who's not really done this before and you know wants to do something but is is worried about the consequences of you know being arrested, losing their job, getting into trouble? Where you know, and, and then comparing that to well, if I don't do anything, nothing's ever going to change. I mean, you have to. You have to choose. Frida and I talk a lot about the effectiveness of protest, and I think your style is probably one of the most effective because it, you know, it's non-violent, it's direct action, and you always make sure the cameras are there too, you know, to get the publicity. So, could could you just talk us through, you know, how do we do this? Well, I think you know the starting point is that trans rights is a just cause, mm. a very powerful just cause. And if we are able to explain to the public why and tell the stories of trans people who have suffered victimization uh, and discrimination and hate crime, then we will begin to change the narrative. See, a lot of people do not understand or realize the scale of hostility and victimization that trans people face. We have a general idea, but it's only when the personal stories of individuals are told that it really gets to a lot of people. And this is the tactic we used in back in the 1980s when we were battling for lesbian, gay and bisexual rights. We told the stories of individual people who had been victimised. So, for example, the two lesbians who were arrested for giving each other a goodnight kiss at the ticket barriers at Victoria Station. We told their story and lots of people who were not necessarily pro LGBT plus saw that yeah. that was, a, that was a, a absurd, monstrous abuse of the law. So telling yeah. stories is one thing. And the other thing is, yeah, making the protest, targeting the right people and doing the protest in a way that's either daring or provocative or confrontational or witty or humor. Yeah. Humor yeah. or wit is, a great, really way, is a great way to diffuse hostility. If you can make someone laugh and give them a chuckle, yeah. then that you've got half the battle won. So do you go do you go through a bit of a process before you're going to go and do something? Do you go you kind of go through a process 
kind of thinking about these things like you know we, we've got that angle covered we've got that angle covered is that is that how you do it yeah i i sort of plan protest like you know a military you know, commander you know plans a war yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I assess you know all the strengths and weaknesses what resources we have what could be achieved what might go wrong yeah, uh, I always have a plan A and a plan B, and sometimes even a plan B. I think that's re- that's really an important point. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say I've got so many plans for things, but <laughs> like if I come to London, Peter, can I come and meet up with you and we can uh, uh, plan a strategy? <laughs> so here's here's one of Frida's ideas. What she wants to do is she wants yeah. to buy a water cannon, fill it with no, rainbow no. paint, drive down to Tufton Street, and spray it on the walls of Tufton Street. So. Oh, you've talked, you've blown my... Sorry, blown I've blown it. the whole thing now, yeah. But, <laughs> no, I mean... You better edit the, that out of the final final version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can... <laughs> I, I, one thing I would want did want to say is, because what it is, I sometimes feel like a lone voice, and I have ideas, and I, and I feel like I don't want to be um, like an organiser. I want people to be on the same page and not have to be the person saying, right, we need to do this, because I find it difficult to be... I mean, I can organize and I can do that, but I don't want to feel like I'm on my own doing that. I want so if there's not enough network of of, of passion for it, I feel like well, I can't. I could do it on my own, but then I'm risking quite a lot because I work I work for quite a public yeah. facing organization that I'm not allowed to mention, and this is why people have tried to get me fired. So I feel like almost restrained by having to live one life and then wanting to do the other so when I, once i get that freedom i think i might be a might be dangerous victoria <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think i should add that freed is not actually going to do this it was just an example so okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if i but can I'm, just add that you know yeah, yeah you, you there are things you can do alone by yourself but it's always better to do it in a group so i am the public face but i have my mm. foundation supporting me and backing me, organizing and and, and doing things um, to make sure it all happens and works well. So it is best to try and get together with other like-minded people as a group do something. Safety in, safety in numbers. Yeah, safety one thing, because yeah. I'm up in Manchester and we do things in Manchester, but I think it'd have to be in London, you see. So I, 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 I'm sort of disjointed. But the great thing is the internet. <laughs> so we can network oh, and we bring, can... Bring the cameras but, up north, you know. But but the thing is with me, like get the, my protest has been getting myself in the media. Like when I'm on GB News, I feel like I'm in a hostile environment and I'm in the way of a conversation. And that might have more effect than me standing on a street corner with a, a bullhorn, do you know what I mean? So 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 that's why I've done that. And 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 obviously, like I said before, through doing that, I've I've had the pushback of people from the trans community who also say, "Well, you're feeding, you you you're working with the enemy." I said, "Well, no, I'm not. I mean, that's <laughs> the only way I'm going to get my voice heard." And it's quite easy to get on those kind of shows. That's the irony of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just have to tell them or remind them that those programs have viewers. Mm. If you're not there to speak up, the only perspective those viewers will get yes. of the anti-trans uh, critics yeah. and so it's really important that you or others are there you know you know if we just leave them to get a one-sided anti-trans view those people's hostility to trans people will be reinforced whereas if you're there you'll help break it down so it's around it's really more about disrupting what they're doing 
yeah in a way yeah yeah yeah, mm. yeah. so I mean, I, I, also on, on on trans issues i always i don't always succeed but i do try to um challenge what they're saying yeah mm. often by starting off by saying look do you realize that every trans person i know and every trans ally i know including me whenever we defend the trans community in the most polite and courteous way we get threats to kill us i know it's horrendous yeah us, mm. burn down our homes that's what your toxic language mm. is helping to fuel yes and they exactly. they re- really back off then i mean I've, maybe it's just me but they, they put, puts them in a bad place you know yeah quite rightly so you know this 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 topic of free speech um i know this is another one of the things that you talk about a lot peter and there's been a couple of things on Twitter recently, I know there was a bit of a spat over Maya Forstaters. You, you'd put something on Twitter about that, and I think you got some backlash. But the way I see it is that what you were what you were saying is that you were saying, um, you know, this person has a right to free speech, and I think how it sometimes gets interpreted is that you, you you've said something in support of that person, and you, I think you made it very clear that you're not supporting their view. But you are supporting um, free speech. Now, the thing the thing that I struggle with is where does free speech become hate speech, and then you know it, it leads into incitement and violence, and worse. You know, how do we find the boundary between free speech and where it starts slipping into something worse? So, very quickly, um, free speech is one of the most precious of all human rights. People went to prison and were even killed to establish that right and freedom. So to restrict it, there has to be very strong, compelling grounds. And there's only basically three. First of all, if someone makes false damaging allegations against someone, like saying they're a paedophile, a rapist, a wife beater, or a tax fraudster, that is not free speech. That's an abuse of free speech. Mm-hmm. Next, if someone uh, engages in harassment, threats, and menaces against a person, And thirdly, if they incite violence, those are my three red lines. Otherwise, the best way to deal with bigoted ideas is by challenging them, exposing them, producing the evidence to show why they're wrong. And that's what we did in the 1980s when we were battling against homophobia, when we were fighting for LGB rights. Um, We gave the counter arguments, the evidence, to show why that's wrong. And of course, protest against the people. So I didn't support Jermaine Greer being banned from speaking at Cambridge University, but I did very strongly say that she should have an alternative speaker up against her, a trans speaker, to give a different point of view. And I supported the protest outside the Cambridge Union. Yeah. So I think I think it's the clear definition between, you know, what you're saying is hate speech and um Sorry, free speech, and you know when it becomes hate speech, I think you know it's, those three kind of rules you have there. I think that you know it kind of explains what it is you're saying, and and people do misinterpret that sometimes. Um, I know we we have limited time here, so yeah. just like to say thanks so much for coming on and doing this, um, spending Thank time you, yeah. with us. It's really interesting conversation, um, valuable, mm. and also Pete, thanks for your you know unending support for the trans community i think that's Mm. wonderful it's great to see 
such a prominent person as yourself doing that. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thank there you. Is, there, is one, there is one more thing we, we ask of our guests, and it's, we have a little song at the end of the podcast. where we, You don't have where to we, do it. You don't but... have to do it. But it's, it's, it's don't forget to subscribe. It's very simple. That's all, that's all we do. So before we do that, is there any, is there any kind of final word? Um, you know, what, what would your message be to the trans community? Well, first let me say, if you want to find out more about my work, please go to my foundation's website, yeah. petersatchelfoundation.org. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the top right-hand corner, there's a button which says, join us. If you give us your email address, we will send you free of charge a weekly roundup of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. Yeah. And you can unsubscribe anytime. Um, my final word for tonight is for trans people and allies, for everyone everywhere, don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Oh, so Frida's going to lead us in the little song. And then now, <laughs> this is just a little tradition, a bit of a laugh we do at the end because we've never been able to do it right. So <laughs> the song is Don't Forget to Subscribe, like that. So I'll count us in after three. So it's one, two, three. Don't, Don't forget, forget to subscribe. <laughs> Well, that, that was that was terrible. But that, it, never, it was terrible, never but good. it's always terrible. And we absolutely well, the, love your that final, part. Your final message was absolutely fantastic for us there, Peter. And I'd like to just say thank you for taking the time to do it. And um, I think, Vicky, Vicky, have you have anything to add? No, I just, I mean, just thank you for coming on, Peter. It's uh, it's great to see you. I hope to see you some, in some other place soon yeah. and maybe on a protest. Great. Thank you both very, very much. And best wishes to all your listeners and viewers. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.